Hi, I'm Sam. Hi, I'm Tim. And welcome to the Classical Music Pod. Today we got all the usual news and reviews. An interview with the founder of Chinake, Chichi Nuanaku. Plus Berlioz, Bernstein and Mr Bean. Let's get on with the pod. Disarray in two of America's top orchestras. I know. Chicago Symphony Orchestra is on strike, first of all. And quite right, because they have been trying to renegotiate their labour agreement and management are still trying to reduce their pension benefits. So they decided on Monday that they were just going to walk out and announce that they won't be returning to the concert hall until a new contract is reached. The chair of the musicians, uh, bassist Steve Lester, has said, we have been clear from the beginning that we will not accept a contract that diminishes the well-being of men. No, there's enough demands on orchestral players already to be sight reading everything under the sun that throwing in extra pension concerns is unnecessary, sure. Exactly. Principal conductor Ricardo Muti has joined them on the picket line in a neutral capacity. He mm. says he doesn't want to join the picket line, he wants to be of help to both sides, but it's still quite a good show mm. from a big name in classical music. The South Florida Symphony Orchestra is also under scrutiny this week because they still haven't paid their players from its production of Porgy and Bess, which took place over two months ago. The orchestra said in their defence on February the 20th, the delay we encountered in funding was finally resolved yesterday. Yesterday, checks are being sent out via mail. We sincerely apologise, blah, 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 blah. But this is the, the 18th of March now, and that yep, still so hasn't happened. Yeah, so it's almost a full month later. And in response, their assistant conductor has said... I am simply mesmerised by the sheer arrogance and by the incomprehensible level of irresponsibility shown by the South Florida Symphony Orchestra and its leaders, which is a good withering soundbite if ever I heard one. Hopefully that can be resolved soon because those poor musicians just aren't being paid. Hopefully musicians in this country will have better legal protection following a court case this week. Yep, that's true. Employment specialist barrister Mungni Islam Chowdhury has successfully argued that a peripatetic music teacher should be recognised as a worker and not as self-employed. So this is a ruling that's come uh, at Scott and Chigwell School, and it means that uh, peripatetic teachers will get rights and protections like holiday pay, national minimum wage, whistleblower protection, and protection from discrimination under the Equality Act. Mm. As a peripatetic music teacher yourself... How do you feel about this ruling? So when I go into a school at the moment, I engage in a contract with the parent directly. And if they don't pay me, I have no recourse through the school. I will have to take them to small claims court, actually. Uh, And sometimes I've had to threaten that kind of thing in order to get what I'm due. Hopefully these kind of things will offer more protection and more recourse. The danger is that some musicians want to be self-employed the whole time. And it's whether this is an option in kind of situation or whether there will be a uniform requirement to become an employee of the school you could end up being an employee of you know eight different institutions across your working week if you were a, a really committed perry teacher we will keep you posted to see how this develops sir thomas allen is retiring after 45 years and 50 roles at covent garden he's an amazing singer and i remember seeing him uh, on youtube obviously uh do the Vaughan Williams mystical songs at the 2004 Last Night at the Proms, and it was just the most expressive singing I'd ever seen at that point, and truly one of the greats. Liverpool are building a new concert hall. The university is committed to building a 400-seat performance auditorium, which 
and I quote, will enrich the cultural life of the city and deliver real-world experience to students. The complete centre is going to cost £20.5 and it's going to have space for a 70-piece orchestra. Which is a slightly interesting decision in that that isn't big enough to house the premier orchestra in Liverpool, the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic. Mm. So it'll have to be used for other things, maybe more of a university venue. Um, It is certainly a lot cheaper than the new London Barbican project, which is being touted at about £300 at the moment. Here's an innovative idea. The Cleveland Orchestra is basing its new season around music banned by the Nazis. Yeah, there's some top music on there. Albenberg's Lulu is the centrepiece of the 18th season with conductor Franz Welser Most. Other composers include Schulhoff and Krennic, and they were all banned by the Nazis for being degenerate, quote-unquote. Yeah, Franz Velsermost has said that this kind of programme is so successful in Cleveland because they have such an extraordinary, adventurous and open-minded audience, which is a very nice thing for him to say. Maybe he's trying to appeal to audiences slightly more than when he was in London. Uh, It's my understanding that when he was at the Philharmonia, he was known as, frankly, worse than most. (laughs) Sam, have you ever been sacked? Uh, No, not yet. (laughs) Well, Dr Francesca Carpos has been. From the Royal Academy of Music, where she teaches professional development. Oh dear. She was fired from her post for allegedly referring to violinists as jippos. That is not good. She said in a statement, I consider myself to be an advocate for diversity and equality in the industry, but I have been labelled as someone who warranted instant dismissal and who had racist views. She has since sued the Royal Academy for unjust dismissal, and they've reached an out-of-court settlement of over £180,000. So we've seen the materials that are handed out at this talk and a sort of professional development panel uh, about how to get on in the music industry. And it does say that students may hear violinists being referred to as gippos, short for gypsies, which is obviously a terrible thing. However, it doesn't say, which is obviously a terrible thing. Uh, that's what we're adding. And I think the question is whether there's a sort of tacit acceptance in not condemning that this slang is in use. Mm. She isn't coming out and saying it herself. She's saying that this is what students may encounter. Yeah, but it's a very risky game to play when you're under such scrutiny as a professor at one of the most respected conservatoires in the world. Yeah, and I mean, I think maybe does it reflect a general competency level? The rest of the advice on this document includes things like bring a corkscrew, build prestige by generally being seen around people who are important Mm. and know the right people, including uh, actually avoid drugs, which is always a good message. But would you pay £10,000 a year for advice like that? The word on the street is that perhaps this was an excuse to get rid of an unsatisfactory employee rather than the primary reason for firing her. You're fired. Some of you may remember a few weeks ago we interviewed Hiroshi Amako and he mentioned the involvement of refugees in the Hamburg State Opera production of Verdi's Nabucco, possibly inspired by it. Birmingham's new production of Shostakovich's Lady Macbeth featured a large number of Middle East and African refugees in the production as chorus and in other small roles as well. It drew many five-star reviews, and it's no wonder with good ideas like that. Mm. And our final bit of news is that a seven-year-old has won an international violin competition. That's very impressive. Himari Yoshimura has won the international Gumwa competition in Brussels in Belgium. What does she sound like? She sounds like this.
Analysis. Analysis. <laughs> I thought this week I'd look at a piece of Berlioz because I never really get on with him. And like, no, you a, hate Berlioz. It's his anniversary year, and he's everywhere. And I don't enjoy Symphonie Fantastique. The only real joy I get from that is when I get to nod at bits that I recognise and don't like. Mm, yeah. Or there's the Shepherd's Farewell, that sort of faux uh, Arcadian carol that sounds like a bad Dolly Parton song. <laughs> bow wow, bow wow, ba ba ba. So, but I thought I would. Do my best. I'd try and find some Berlioz that I like. So I dug into uh, a piece that I didn't know that well to see if I'm missing something or is it Hector instead. The piece is Harold in Italy. It's a four-movement symphony, but with a viola soloist. Okay, that's cool. It sounds like a bit of a contradiction. Is it a concerto? Isn't it concerto? He deliberately says it's a symphony, and it has definitely got a soloist, who is in fact asked specifically to stand a long, long way away from the orchestra. Right. Is that just because it's a viola player? Uh, It might just be because it's a viola player. I think he wants that distance to characterise Harold. But you're right, writing for solo viola is an unusual move. It's an instrument that sits in the middle of the texture... It doesn't have a particularly bright or startling tone or even have a sort of canon of virtuosic works to interact with. It's a bit like picking Nick Hewer as your favourite countdown host. It's not wrong. There are worse options, but there's an obvious better one. Susie Dent. Harold in Italy is a programmatic work. There's an explicit story being portrayed in the music. Lord Byron's epic poem, Child Harold in Italy, is suffused with a little of Berlioz's own experience from his gap year travels and they form a narrative skeleton for the work as a whole. Throughout each of the four movements, Berlioz deploys a Harold theme played by the viola. It sounds like this. That theme doesn't develop in the way a Wagnerian leitmotif might get developed. Instead, it remains fixed. Berlioz would even call this kind of theme an idée fixe, and is juxtaposed with different material. Here it is being played against a harp in the first movement. The finale, though, is the movement I want to talk about today because it's where I really start checking my watch. I find it hard to listen all the way through to, and in any recording or performance I've encountered, I end up feeling like I'm waiting for something to happen, and it never does. Through a bit of digging this week, I've come to the conclusion that Berlioz does that on purpose. In other words, after some extensive research, I've reinforced my pre-existing conclusion. Who says echo chambers only exist on social media? The opening of the orgy of brigands, the finale, sounds like this. What we've actually heard there is the orgiastic brigands music, followed by a reminiscence, a theme from the introduction of the first movement brought back. And then it's jettisoned for the return of these brigands. 
See if you can spot a similar trend happening here. Another theme is rejected. In fact, across the introduction, the rowdy brigands reject a series of themes from all the previous movements. Anyone who's as boring as me might have noticed that this is exactly what happens at the beginning of the finale of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. The Ninth was premiered only ten years before and is an obvious structural model. After these rejections in Beethoven 9, the orchestra finds itself insufficient and the bass soloist stands and sings O Freunde, nicht dieser Toner. Literally, O Friends, not these sounds. Here it is being sung by Rowan Atkinson. Like Goldilocks, Beethoven's orchestral narrative says this one's too big, this one's too small, the Ode de Joy is just right. Berlioz has deliberately evoked Beethoven, the brigands have rejected all these other themes, it sets up the return of Harold. He's played a big part in the previous movements, surely his theme will become Ode-like, the great unifying theme. And Harold does return in bar 80, but it sounds essentially unimpressive, appearing mostly on clarinets with a really indecisive version on the viola. Have a listen to what happens a few bars later. gets rejected too. After Harold proves musically impotent, the finale goes into the extended orgy. It's a head-bangingly boring phase. It's when I start checking my watch, the audience starts shifting in their seats and thoughts drift to making your last train. This orgy music which frankly isn't that exciting, goes on and on and on, and gradually we build up a sensation of Harold's absence from the drama. We hold out hope he'll return and save the day. Think Han Solo, the end of A New Hope. He says to Luke that he won't help him blow up the Death Star, but when Vader is about to zap Luke, Han appears out of nowhere to save the day. That's my last hope, that Harold is going to turn out to be Han Solo, that this Goldilocks wanted a lukewarm bowl of porridge after all. But instead, after doing nothing for 373 bars, just think about that visually, the soloist stands there in a finale for the middle five minutes doing next to nothing. 
Harold's theme does return and is played on the viola alongside a sort of string quartet. And of course, limply, it flops out a few bars later with the brigands returning and rejecting him too. just plays out and comes to an unsatisfying end. Conversely, if a series of The Apprentice ended up like this, I'd be chuffed. All the candidates rejected for not being up to scratch. You're fired. Berlioz's Harold is the worst of the gap year students. He travels all around the world musically and returns the same as when he left, really. Admittedly, with fewer ginger cornrows and terrible tribal tattoos. Really, I think that Berlioz has composed Harold as an anti-Beethovenian hero. Not the revolutionary Napoleonic actor the liberator of the Eroica Symphony, or the Fifth Symphony, nor the transcendent political idealist of Beethoven IX. Harold is a different realisation of the romantic protagonist, an introverted, detached, observational non-participant. As with so much of Berlioz's music, it's got lots of interesting ideas in it. Taking a beta hero as your model, his absence, the lack of resolution or evolution across the work, is deliberate, and those are interesting concepts but as a piece, I just don't enjoy listening to it. What I end up thinking is, isn't music amazing? Because there's definitely lots of interesting, thoughtful ideas at work here, and yet that isn't all of what makes a great piece. There's that slightly indefinable thing, that little piece of magic dust we still want as listeners that can't really be explained, can't be analysed, can't be pulled apart. Whatever it is, I don't think Berlioz has got it for me. Composer Fact File, Hector Berlioz. Ginger. Born 1803, son of a Grenoble doctor. Didn't receive music lessons until he was 12. Sent to medical school in Paris, but defied his father's wishes by pursuing a career in music. Wrote the semi-autobiographical Symphonie Fantastique in a bid to impress Harriet Smithson. Could play the guitar and flute, but not the piano. Was an advocate of the octobass. Won the Prix de Rome on his fourth attempt. His requiem is scored for over 400 people, including full brass bands. Paganini declared him Beethoven's heir. He was a critic as well as a composer. He almost committed a murder when his second wife fell in love with an older, richer man. He once said, Time is a great teacher, but unfortunately it kills all its pupils. I went to the Cutty Sark on Friday. Lovely. Uh, you were meant to be reviewing a concert. The, that's where the concert was. It was the BBC Singers and Cabantu, Remarkable. who are a Manchester-based quintet. Their deal is they create unlikely marriages of folk music from around the world. It's a fusion band, basically, mm-hmm. and it's, it's folk fusion. Their violinist is Scottish. They have a drummer, percussionist from South Africa. Wow, yeah. A pairing with the BBC Singers, who are obviously this sort of 
very traditional English choral group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Curtis Sark is cool because it's a ship, but underneath it is the visitor centre, and there's it's this long room, and you've got the ship overhead, and you can see its hull on top of you. But it's I mean, up, it's that inside. is a that sounds like a cool space to go and. It's a cool uh, venue. Stuff. It's a cool venue. It's it's uh, it's cool and it's not cool. I get onto it in a second. Why it's not cool? So the evening was divided up into three sections. Mm-hmm. Uh, the BBC singers started it off, and then on their own, and then Cabantu on their own, and then they came together in the final section. And he, when the conductor, say Alexander the Strange conductor, he led his singers down the aisle beneath the ship. They were carrying water bottles, which was the... Is it thirsty? Is that the, uh, that, the My problem? initial thought was, maybe they're just... That's a slightly unprofessional way of dealing yeah, with your... Lots of colds lots and of stuff. Lots of colds. Yeah. Uh, but no, that was a sign of things to come. The part one was entitled The Suez Canal Route. And this is my main problem with the evening, I think, is that it tried very hard to attach seemingly random pieces of music to a programme based around the Cutty-Sark and its journey across the world. It just felt a little bit contrived, perhaps. Mm. So it was a bit of a hodgepodge of vaguely naval, (laughs) maritime-related songs. So they opened, of course, with Somewhere Beyond the Sea, a cheesy arrangement of that, and then they went on to a Wilkes madrigal. The classic pairing. (laughs) The Andalusian merchant about somebody who sailed over to England once. So it, it, all these pieces, they sort of delve into sea themes, but very shallow. A, a shallow dive into sea so themes. It was, a, it was <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Alexander Lestrange's setting of Full Fathom Five, which has been set, I think, by Vaughan Williams. Yeah. And that's words spoken by Ariel to Ferdinand in Shakespeare's The Tempest. And that was my favourite bit of their section. There mm. was this really lovely bit of word painting where it goes, full fathom five, fathom five. And it's really hypnotic and it goes on over and over again. And it's quite a nice way of depicting the idea of his father sunken to the bottom of the sea where he mm. rests. Then they ruined it, that by singing <laughs> <laughs> and his Ross Water, which was written especially for the National Youth Choir of Great Britain. And uh, that's when the water bottles materialised and they blew across them to make... It's very trendy. Very trendy. To make, I think it's Helmholtz resonance, it's called. Where you you blow across it and they were all at different... Yeah, exactly. There were different lengths of... Different amounts of water in the bottles to make different pictures. And it just... It felt very gimmicky to me, I'm sorry. And it felt like that was Mm. a piece that should firmly stay in the repertoire of the National Youth Choir. And yeah, fun for kids to do and like mm, exciting. I was a bit confused. Music. Yeah, exactly. But then the, so the second second part was Cabanto on their own and they played very well from what I could hear. And this is the problem I have with the venue. It's a really cool space. It's underneath yeah. a big ship, but the acoustics, it's like a shopping centre. You can't right. hear any of the top frequencies yeah. and you couldn't hear any of the violin. But so, so the first piece they played was, it was a, a reel essentially, but composed by the violinist Katie Foster, mm-hmm. who was, it was brilliant from what I could hear, but it really suffered. But it was kinder to pieces like Ulitsile, which is a South African funeral song, and Zizu Anuala, based on... Gamelan polyrhythms and Indonesian scales. Cool. And also features a hang. I have no idea what a hang is, Tim. It's that instrument that was made famous by the Portico Quartet. It's invented in 2000. Still it looks no like idea. a flying saucer. Yes. The drum. Yeah, yeah. Uh, guys playing up the tube. Mm, and that was played very beautifully. Mm. It was a really nice effect. And then the final part was this sort of semi improvised montage come jam session. I mean, that actually sounds really cool. It was cool. And this was my favourite bit of the concert. The um, 
so Comanche they were playing ferocious percussion and the BBC mm. singers BBC singers they that well they started off by processing down the aisle doing lots of like wows. yeah I wasn't convinced by it, but then they they went up the steps and they sung over the top of Cabantu. so it was at this point when Alexander Lestrange unleashed that full bodied cathedral tinted sound that the BBC yeah. singers are capable of producing and it soared over the top of the of Cabantu. it was the juxtaposition was stark, but mm. very powerful and moving. So when the BBC singers stick to what they do best, and Cabanto mm. sticking to what they do best, and there's no mix of those oral and written traditions, yeah. that's when the music is most effective. Yeah, so what is produced, what is thrown out, is the fusion, rather than the musicians themselves having to try and pretend in another tradition. Exactly. And then they ruined it by doing a Wellington boot dance to finish. You're fired. Sam, you've been listening to a CD. I have. It's something in between from mm. Trio Zadig, which is out this week on Out There Music. They are a Franco-American trio, and what's really nice about this disc is that they're playing Franco-American music. See, I always associate the national anthems of France and the United States. Tim, I can't legislate for that. I'm sorry, I haven't worked it into the review. <laughs> it's just a piece of random information. No, no, but no, it's, no, it's allow wonderful. Me, allow me to explain why. Uh, please do. <laughs> because they're both triads. And I always think about the French going up and the Americans going down. That's rather good. I like that. So, Franco-Americans, whether they go up or whether they go down, they start with Bernstein and his Condide Overture, again, a marriage of an American composer and a French narrative written by Voltaire. They follow that with some more Bernstein, a suite from West Side Story, arranged for trio by Bruno Fontaine. They then play... Asfar, a piece by Benjamin Atahir, who's a childhood friend of some of the trio, which is a really nice touch. And they finish off with a trio by Maurice Ravel. So a bit of French music, a bit of American music, and everything that they perform, it's personal for them to be recording it rather than another trio. Mm. And I think that's quite... If you're going to make a disc these days, you've got to have a good reason. Yeah. And that feels like a good reason to record all of those works. That's a nice hook, isn't it? Yeah. What was the quality of the playing like? Was it? I think the quality of the playing overall is very good. Particularly the string sound has got real sparkle, a bit of luster. Mm. As it goes up higher into those top registers, it really sort of squeals, that burnished sound, which is fantastic. I like that a lot. I can't work out whether it's the balance or whether it's the actual playing, but the piano feels too strong in the balance okay. for me. Quite often it feels heavy in the left hand and quite strongly attacked. I can't legislate for whether that's the room, whether that's the microphone, whether that's the player but the product that we end up with, it doesn't totally satisfy on that front. Right. I think that particularly comes out in the opening, the Condide Overture. I can't work out whether it's a product of they're trying to sound like the full orchestral version and trying to pull that out of fewer instruments, or whether it's, again, just an issue of the balance. The great danger when you hear an arrangement is that you are constantly just listening for how it's different or inferior to a full orchestral suite. Trying to replicate that brass at the beginning. Yeah, like if it's a reduced version, don't play it like a reduced version. It's got to feel like its own thing. And I I was trying to listen to it as its own thing. And just occasionally that weight of sound felt as if it was trying to pretend to be something else, mm. something that it wasn't. Even with that said, there's some wonderful playing that um, da 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 second movement, yeah, second uh, melody, yeah. subject is really beautifully brought out and um, the arrangements are clever. I think the West Side Story arrangement, which is by the same guy, Bruno Fontaine, are even cleverer, particularly the ones for One Hand, One Heart, which I, I think is probably the most underrated tune in West Side Story. But... I can't even 
picture it in my head. Make of these hands, one hand, make a da 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 Make of these walls. It's, oh, it's good. That arrangement just brings something out of the original melody and the original orchestration and harmony that wasn't already there. It's creating that new aspect that you didn't get with the concert. Yeah, really a creative arrangement. At its best, I think the West Side Story section of the CD really brings those things out. Mm. We hear new things in that material because it's being played by that ensemble. And that's a testament to the players and the arranging. Again, there's just this little hint sometimes of wanting a surprise. Or you can listen to a couple of the tracks and think, that's very nice playing. But where's the individual personality coming out mm. so it, it's a little bit more hit and miss than the next track which is the Atahir piece Asfar very arresting stuff I think you'd like it very much sort of Shostakovich with a flavour of minimalism very arresting uh, rhythms a good degree of repetition mixed with new material and it suits their slightly more aggressive attacked playing so that weight in the piano that um, fizz on the attack in the strings it all feeds into a really strong piece the opening feels quite monolithic uh, okay. and you're sort of oh cracky what am i what am i in for but then it goes off at such a rate mm. that you're uh, powered along so uh, i really like the work and i think that their playing of it feels personal and it feels involved how did you feel about the revel as a piece i think it's more demanding it requires more of the players and uh, of them as an ensemble i think it shows them at their best the greater variety in textures and the dexterity with which the composer switches the combinations, how we hear that trio, sheds light on their individual playing, which is all of a very high quality. Overall, I think as a disc, it's good with some moments that are very good. But it maybe just goes to show that creating a disc that is brilliant front to back is a huge challenge. And that starts with picking repertoire that really shows you off at your best. I think they've mostly done that. Um, and then playing it across what might be a week's worth of recording sessions and turning up to every single one of those and being outstanding. This is the first disc from Trio Zadig, and I think if they can take the atmosphere and the collective energy that they found on uh, the Atta here and create a disc that hits that note consistently across an hour, it'll be a really outstanding achievement and something that is well within their capabilities. Tim, where have you been roving for us this week? I roved to the Royal Albert Hall to talk to a couple of big fish. Nice. Mm -hmm. Carl Craig, the techno DJ who made his name back in the 90s, part of the second wave of Detroit techno masters. Excellent. And Chi-Chi Nwaliku, the founder and artistic director of Chinike. Wicked. So they're going to be performing tracks from his 2017 album, Verses, which is a techno-orchestral crossover, which is first conceived with the mm. uh, Le Siècle Orchestra and pianist Francesco Tristano back in 2008. Wow. So they met at a gig, and Tristano showed him some piano arrangements that he did of techno classics, like The Bells and The Strings of Life, and Craig was so blown away, he suggested they work on a project together. They put on this concert, they recorded it, and now they're doing it again with Chinnikey at the Royal Albert Hall next month. Fantastic. So I had a chat with both of them about the upcoming concert, and here's how it went. Chinnikey, could you tell us about the conception of this concert? You, you found us, right? You found <laughs> and, you know, we, we were happy to be found. And, you know, when you grow up in the classical music arena, there's, there's something slightly possibly arrogant about it, because we don't... Not many of us look outside of it. Mm. And 
I think it's assumed that everything for, that comes from the classical music genre influences everything else. And I think we could be in danger of being a bit complacent about that and, and therefore slightly stuck, possibly. And it's very exciting to think that you know, there's still more that we can do. Yeah. And, and, and it's funny because classical music is everywhere. I, I come across people who, who don't naturally go towards classical music to concerts or anything like that. And they'll say, well, I, I don't know anything about classical music. I, I don't understand classical music. People can be quite intimidated by it, which I think is unfortunate. My mother was completely intimidated by it. Yeah. She wouldn't come to concerts because she was afraid in case someone asked her, a question afterwards like what did you think <laughs> or did you enjoy that she was terrified because she thought she didn't have the language and I think it's a real shame and I think it's you know shame on us things are beginning to change now but you know I've, I've had a lifetime of not really venturing very far outside of it. Cole hmm. she's just talking about almost exclusivity within classical music did you find that growing up in Detroit and um, yeah, get it right, man. <laughs> yeah, Detroit. I've just been there. I've just come back from there. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Did it feel like classical music was an exclusive club? Um, I grew up listening to a lot of radio. And in my world of listening to radio in Detroit, there wasn't a lot of classical music that was on the radio. More jazz mm. that was on the radio. So as I started growing into music, guys like Marcus Belgrave were playing with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. You know, so there was already that kind of integration that happened musically between uh, classical and jazz music. And, you know, this, this kind of arrogance that can be had within the classical music world is very big in the jazz world, too. <laughs> it's used in the jazz world, yeah. So, you know, it doesn't scare me in, in relation to that because I've been around enough jazz guys. And, you know. <laughs> and, and in some cases, especially in the early days of techno, there's a lot of arrogance in that, too, but it came more from the fans because, you know, you get people that like to hold on to a music and say mm. that this, it's theirs. Especially in the UK, they like this kind of thing of being, I'm the only guy that knows it. You know, it can, it can get intimidating, I'm sure, to folks and, and, and put them off. Is there a particular audience that you're trying to reach with this collaboration, would you say, or is it just? I think like the very first Chineke concert. I mean, I've been on the international concert platform for 35 years, mm. you know, so. I just see the audience that just automatically come to classical concerts and they all pretty much look the same. And when I created the Chineke Orchestra out of necessity and encouragement by government and people like that, um, because there's just this gaping hole and you know, as you stand there watching more and more orchestras competing for smaller and smaller audiences because they're dying off yeah. and they're not rejuvenating audiences. And I knew that, you know, in the lead up to the first Chineke concert, about two, two and a half, three weeks before the first concert, I didn't know if that would be our first and our last concert. I had no idea how we would be received, but we, we'd sold out. And I didn't know who was going to be in the audience apart from my family and my close friends. And as we walked onto the stage, the audience for the first time in my entire career looked like the city I live in. Yeah. And, and I realised that, you know, with one hit, we had addressed a big issue yeah. um, with developing audiences. And, and, you know, because people who had been brainwashed all their lives into thinking they would 
you know, classical music was not for them. It's not your sort of music, is it, to certain groups of people, unfortunately. And, and also, we always play a piece of music that's written by a composer of relative ethnicity. Mm -hmm. You know, we opened with Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, yeah. a black composer who studied at the Royal College of Music over the road. Extraordinary, extraordinary musician and underplayed, underheard. None of us, in, of 62 of us walked onto the stage. None of us have played his music before. Yeah. Shocking. And the beautiful thing was is that there were people in that audience who, who lived not even far from the South Bank Centre, who not only had they never been into a concert hall before, but they'd never even stepped into the South Bank Centre before. And they were so blown away by feeling represented on the stage, represented by what, by knowing that, and I, I also included another black living composer, because I wanted people to see somebody alive that looked like them. And I know for a fact that some of those people in the audience now return to the South Bank to hear concerts, whether we're playing or not. So we have moved that dial. We've opened that, broken down that barrier. Black orchestra, black music, this has got to happen. <laughs> Damn right. <laughs>
uh, which is also Michael Nyman's birthday, and then there's a link here. There is, it's fate, essentially. <laughs> the, the most famous Michael Nyman composition is from the film The Piano, and in the film The Piano, they play the piano by the sea. Bolivian Day of the Sea, Nyman, it's conspiracy it theories. Sunday the 24th, Ugandan National Tree Planting Day. Isn't what, that wonderful? A mere fortnight after the... Iranian National Tree Planting Day. As well as being National Tree Planting Day, in 1721, Bach finished his six Brandenburg concertos and dedicated them to Margave Ludwig of Brandenburg. Must have been a nice end-of-birthday week treat for him. Yeah, a bit of a blowout. And then looking ahead at Friday the 29th, the Aurora Orchestra have been invited to appear at Brussels' Bozar Concert Hall on the night of the 29th, which is actually Brexit night, with the support of the British Council. And that's going to have Haydn, Britain and Tavener, and appearances from Ian Bostrich, the English tenor, and Nicholas Alstedt, and actually novelist Ali Smith is going to be there. Cool. I really enjoyed winter. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. If you enjoyed what you heard today, it would be wonderful if you liked and subscribed to us. And please do drop us an email at theclassicalmusicpod at gmail.com or even on at classicalpod on all the other forms of social media. Mm, and thank you very much to Chichi and Carl for talking to us. And in fact, to everybody who's been in touch on Twitter and Facebook over the past week, we really appreciate it. A dankeschön, auf Wiedersehen.